festering on my skin as we speak cool. uh, a few days before I go do a retreat. So that would be swell. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, I'm, I'm great. It's been a wild day for you. Mm-hmm. Sure has. <laughs> for once, we're not going to talk about why. <laughs> there are things we don't talk about, guys. <laughs> oh, gosh. I... Yeah, there are things we don't talk about. Um, like the text message that just flashed up on my screen as I'm typing this. Um, so cool. All right. Uh, so so this is a long enough episode that, that I think we just want to go right into it. It's such an amazing conversation that took a huge turn. You want me to explain what happened? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't are you wanna... reading your? Are you texting? No, I'll, I'll turn my <laughs> camera on. I'm. I cut you off. I've had probably I've had like three Americanos today. I just drove from LA to Fresno. Um, a little hopped up on caffeine, and I might have interrupted you a lot. And so I'm just I trying like, to I'm like just, I'm give just gonna you sit here and put tree oil on my skin. <laughs> just, just give, just let you talk. I'm just gonna shut up. I'm just gonna shut up. No, it's good. <laughs> Um, um, no, it was one of those times where I'm like, she has no idea she's doing this. You actually said sorry at one point, and then you kept going. So. <laughs> oh. It's hard. Sometimes when you get over-caffeinated, the energy needs to come out somehow in words. <laughs> well, I went – I mean, my day has been like boom, 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 boom. And I, I pulled up into Fresno, ran into the Apple store, got back into my car, ran home, said hi to my mom for five minutes, got on this call, started it, teed it up, and then I was just like, yeah, let's, let's go. go. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking. All right. So – this episode is with Jolene Park, and before we get into who, what all she does, um, we have this amazing conversation. We wanted to talk to her. She she emailed us a long time ago, or a few months ago, and said, hey, I have um, this, I think I have some experience that you might be really interested in, and I don't want to mess up what her official title is, but I know she's a nutri- nutritionist, and she's also a health and wellness coach. She's a functional nutritionist. What I think that functional nutrition yeah. and yeah, functional. She does functional nutrition and um, a lot of work around the craving brain and so trauma, um, addiction in the brain, um, and a million other things that she'll explain on the. She does a she does coaching for executive um, or in the corporate environment. And she also does like one-on-one coaching and she is brilliant. And it was one of the better conversations we've ever had about this. You know, the first time we've really gotten into all this stuff, we've touched on a lot of these pieces and other interviews, but she brought together so much of it and um, also has a unique story of her own that ties into it. So the, the best part about this interview, I think is um, what she says and her, her information is great, but the best part about it, I think for us was that, she said, we asked her if she was comfortable in telling her story. She is sober. She's about two, so two hours, um, 
two years. <laughs> she's two hours sober. So she's been sober since like, you know, 3 p.m. Now she's two years sober and she hasn't really been public with her story um, for professional reasons and maybe some personal ones too. But she, we asked her if she was cool talking about it and, you know, gave her that option. And she said, yeah, I think I am. I'm a little nervous um, for my, you know, professionally, but I think I'm ready. And we went through the whole interview. It was good. She, you know, she told that part, but briefly. And she, when we finished the interview, wrapped it up, you and I talked about how great it was. And she emailed us and said, um, hey, I feel like I just completely glazed over um, some really important parts of my story that I want to share uh, about what brought me to getting sober, what my drinking looked like at the end. And we said, okay, so let's do uh, an addendum to it. And that's what we just recorded. So you're going to hear two parts in this interview. You're going to hear first the the second interview where she talks in depth about her drinking and her um, reasons for getting sober, which are amazing and a story that I think is undertold um, by the demographic, um, by our demographic, really. Yes. Um, and needs to be talked about. And then the second part is the full interview. Well, well done. Thanks. Okay. So anything else to add about Jolene? I love you and I'm sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I forgive you. All right. Here's Jolene. Bye. Bye. Okay. So, all right. So before we jump in, because um, this is going to be at the beginning of, uh, this is before we actually go into the first interview that we recorded with you. But um, before we jump in, Jolene, hello again. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> so we're having you on to do a bit of an addendum, but it's like a pre-addendum. Um <laughs> Because why? We did the interview, we recorded it, we wrapped, and then you sent an email to us. What happened? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we talked and we were uh, talking about just some different resources and the stress in the body and a little bit of my story of the anxiety, my own anxiety, and a lot of the professional work that I do. And got off the conversation with you guys and immediately thought of 10 things that I wish I would have said. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot that. And I wanted to talk about that. And kind of started ruminating about that and had to sit for a minute of, you know, what I um, work with my clients on and what I've learned over these years of not drinking to sit in that and what was under it. And I sat down and wrote, I wrote you guys an email and just kind of brain dumped um, what, what was kind of poking at me. And I realized it was the question that you had asked of, you know, what was that point of why, why did I finally stop drinking? And also there was a question in there of, you know, how, how have people in my life reacted to that? And it, there was this stuff bubbling up in me because I know that I sidestepped it. <laughs> in, yeah. in our mm-hmm. original interview and in that original conversation. And when well, I wrote... Because we, we, we asked you before we got on, we said, mm-hmm. do you want to talk about that? And you said, yeah, I'm, I think I'm good with it. Well, kind of. You kind of said you... I mean, you also it alluded was, to your yeah. professional... I mean, you're pro- what most people are terrified of is... I think um, your business has been built on on health coaching and, and a lot of, of your drinking... 
and, and wellness programs. And, and a lot of your drinking happened while you were in the middle of that career. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And so when, when we talked before we started recording, I said, yep, yep, I'm good. Let's do it. I'm ready to answer the question. And I, side, I sidestepped it. And it started to, that anxiety kind of built up of like, I wish I would have said this. And I, I wrote you guys an email and said, here's the truth. Here, here's the truth to that. And so Holly replied and um, graciously uh, offered to do this addendum. And I'm, you know, thank you for that. And, and I'd like to just do a little bit of a redo of, you know, the answer that I gave, it, it's true, but it's kind of like, like the final sentence. Um, and I wanted to give a little bit more context around that, that summary. You know, I, th- I think I answered it saying, well, you know, I was kind of looking at other relationships and I just knew I wanted more connection and int- intimacy in my relationship. So I stopped drinking. But there was right. so <laughs> much behind that story. And I um, just quickly wanted to wanted to share that. Great. Yeah. So I'm going to ask the question again, then. Um, what was your drinking like at the end? Like how why why do you feel it became unmanageable? Um, and, and what was it that, what did it look like at the end? Yeah. So there was a five-year period when, between when I was 38 and 43 that it really escalated and kind of fell, fell off that cliff. And um, it was, I was very uh, silent about it. it. It was a bit of a secret. At the time, I, I didn't look at it that way. I look at it that way now. And a lot of it was because of my profession. You know, I, I'm a nutritionist. I'm um, out teaching classes, but the other part of my life was this part with relationships and with alcohol. And, you know, like I mentioned in the first interview of kind of that initial drinking started because of a real grief and loss of an initial romantic relationship in my 20s. And that pattern kind of continued in my 30s. Like professionally, things were going great, um, you know, had, had some great friends, but it just was not working with men. You know, I had this pattern um, of my unavailability, their unavailability, and I was drinking more. And also at kind of that 38-year-old mark was that window of if I'm going to have babies, have a baby, have that traditional family unit, which I always wanted, which was always part of this desire for a relationship, the window was closing. And there was grief around that. There was rage around it. And some of the rage was I had gone through a kundalini teacher training um, and didn't drink for, for quite a period of time because of that yoga and met a guy, and uh, we was just initially started dating, and I hadn't been drinking, and, and you know, it kind of came up, and, and he had said, well, you know, it'd be kind of nice to, like, ha- go to dinner and share a glass of wine, and it was kind of this shaming thing. He didn't know me. We were just starting to date, and I'm like, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. I want to be this normal drinker, and that happened a lot where I'd kind of pull back. I would stop, and people would kind of, they don't know me, but they'd make these comments, and that was the cliff. I was 38 years old. Um, and he, you know, dumped me five months or three months later and I was pissed. I was like, why did I start drinking for this guy? And I'm like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to keep drinking. I'm going to do yoga. And I just, with a vengeance and into the drinking and it was secret. You know, so much of my drinking was on my own, um, at home at at night, you know, wine. Uh, Often I would be out with friends and I I didn't like to drink a lot in front of people because I like to, I wasn't like a, um, social anxiety. I mean, I like to stay kind of alert and know what's going. I didn't want to get to that place. So often I would have a glass or two of wine with friends, but on my way home, I would stop and have more on my own, or I would go home and drink at home. And people didn't know that. And that was a real um, secret that, you know, I was 40. I was actually in a relationship and I went to Europe for three weeks on my own for my 40th birthday. And I drank my way through Europe. So there was all of that kind of going on 
in conjunction with my professional life, which I was holding together really well, as many now, hold, people do. Hold on. I want to slow it down just a little bit. There was so much. Um, and it was great. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that really struck me. And, and the first is this. It's this idea. First of all, it's this like it is this um, – your career. I just listened to, I was just, uh, I was just interviewed by my friend Andrea Freddy on her podcast, Yoga Land. And I was just listening to my, my story. And it's so funny because I never really talk about this, but this is a really big part of it, which is we hit this point. Some of us women do. We hit this point where we feel like we miss our opportunity to have babies and be in a partnership. Um, and so I feel like you said that, and I think that's a really important part of it. Um, for me, I know it was I stopped. I thought I had lost my opportunity to do that. And so I turned on my body, and also I threw myself into the one thing I knew I could be really great at, which was my career. And I think I heard that in the email that you sent. Can you talk a little bit more about that part of it, about the profession, like your your professional life going awesomely, and then that that partnership thing and, and the baby thing? Sure. Um, that was the crux of it. So the, it, it was that lost dream. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of pain in that. There was a lot of grief in that. It was something that I very much wanted. And it just, the, the guy wasn't there to have that dream with. And lots of pain. And I could kind of intellectually say that, like I am now. You know, I'm in my intellect. Um, But I can drop into that, and there's still pain. You know, there's still, there's, it's it's a huge loss um, that I would drink. And and it wasn't, you know, I don't want to say like day to day, I'm just going through like, oh, this loss of not having a baby. (laughs) It certainly wasn't it. But it, it was absolutely the entry point that yeah. started, you know, yeah. with that first loss of a relationship yes. yeah. that then continued. And it was that thread that um, wine became, it, it was my preferred way to kind of medicate. Yeah. You know, if, if I were worried about money or worried about, um, you know, because I, I was running my own business or, you know, anything like that. Anything, and it could even be good. Like I could have had a really good day. Um, but just to kind of come down from that and regulate that. And it was becoming more and more of what I went to. But yeah, lots of just silent um, that I, I didn't talk about. I was ashamed to talk about it and, and didn't kind of know what that would do with me professionally, you know, because I was, I was helping so many others. And it's like, you're I afraid to talk about the drinking or the relationship stuff or both. Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. yeah. You're afraid yeah. about the relationship stuff because societally and all that other crap that goes around it. But the professional stuff is also you were a health and wellness um, uh, professional and you were teaching people how to take care of themselves. Um, and I'm imagining and it's interesting because I was really surprised at first. Some of my first clients were um, were were uh, in the healing were were healers. So they were either yoga instructors, lots of yoga instructors, um, some therapists, nutritionists. Um, and so it's interesting because what I what I saw was a high percentage of the people that were contacting me were people that had this one piece they couldn't get right or, or couldn't quite figure out how to do. Um, and so I, and I think it's a bit of a compounding um, shame. 
And, and that piece being the relationship piece? No, the, that your profession is to heal people and to teach people how to take care of themselves. And then there's this one piece with the alcohol that's, um, that has to feel out of alignment with that. Yeah. Well, like today, I mean, I, I was on a coaching call with a client today and she, she said, she said, you know, I just um, see your stuff online and have followed your career. And, you know, we've been working together and, and she just says, I, I just feel like, you, you know, you balance this so well. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and, <laughs> I love and, hearing that. It's so funny. I know. And, yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and I say to her, this is what, what I, and I so mean it of these healthy discoveries and why I'm so interested, particularly in the neurochemistry and all, everything that we talked about in the first interview is it's because of me dragging my own bloody knuckles and hitting mm-hmm. my own head and, and being on my knees, yeah. which, which, you know, and I just haven't been public about that. Um, or I think I kind of say it, you know, really flippant and people don't, haven't really understood some of the silent piece that was, was going on. And I'm just much more ready to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just find, you know, many, many people identify with it. Because again, it wasn't this big crash and burn thing of, you know, the bottom fell out for me. Uh, right. Like, but I was using alcohol in a way that um, was becoming more and more ineffective <laughs> right. for me. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so I, I guess just to kind of finish that up of like, what was that point then, you know, of, of this, cause there was this, that five year period was really, um, for me, that's, that's what I focus in on of like when things really started to kind of escalate. And that was what age there, you said 38 to 43, 43. Yeah. yeah. And again, it was, kind of, you know, a lot of people didn't know this. Most people didn't know this. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, and I would stop and start, um, you know, I wasn't, kind of, you know, a daily drinker, although the last year I was, but I would go periods of six weeks and a couple months and I'd kind of do the stopping and starting and mentally I'd wake up, um, hundreds of times I'm stopping, I'm not going to drink again. And then I would drink again. And again, my quantities were not big because I just don't have the, my biochemistry, I would always feel so sick. And that was part of why I'm like, I got to stop this. Like I just felt so sick each day. Um, but I stopped for a couple months and was out and handed a glass of wine. Very innocent. Very, very innocent. And I was just like, again, I just want to be able to socially drink and be sophisticated and stand here and have a glass of wine. Yeah. And once again, over the cliff and really drank more than I had that final year and was starting to do more vodka. I was always a wine drinker. And yeah. I just, I, I really knew like how this was escalating. I was like, I'm 43 years old, continuing to do this like day after day, week after week. At 53, first of all, I could see something actually catastrophic happening at that point. Um, And I was just like, I don't want to, what I know about breast cancer and alcohol and and what I want in a relationship um, with that connection and intimacy, drinking like this, it's not going to happen. And and, and, you know, it wasn't planned. It was kind of, there had been so much back and forth mental rumination and I'm stopping and then I wouldn't stop. And sometimes I would stop and nobody knew this, you know, and yeah. it was Saturday. I was out with a friend. I had uh, vodka uh, and soda, which was a new thing for me. I wanted more, but I didn't want to keep drinking with her. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah. on by myself, again, kind of typical. I had two more vodka sodas at another place um, and they were strong for me, went home, um, went out, uh, went out and got more food, had two glasses of wine. So it was, you know, five drinks and I felt sick until Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So that was like that quantity for me was so much for my biochemistry and in that haze of like, but I was starting to do that every day. 
And in that um, Saturday to Tuesday, because of all the starting and stopping and, you know, the back and forth during this time period, I just, I knew in my bones that I was absolutely done. And it was um, in December, uh, Christmas was 10 days away. My birthday was 14 days away, New Year's uh, after that, and had a girl's trip on the calendar to go to Vail in January. And I was done. Like I knew because of all the back and forth, there's always going to be a holiday. There's always going to be an event. There's yeah. always going to be something. There's never a good time. And I was like, it's, it's, it's that. so important to say that. I'm just, it's so true because I, you know, that's one of the things I think people think and get stuck on. Well, well, because it, because alcohol, when alcohol is in your life like this, there is you, you cannot, yeah. you will never escape the loop of there's. You're going to. I mean, you have to come up against that, which is why yeah. when I right. stopped doing it right before the hall, I stopped doing it right before the holidays, um, and that was it was perfect. And like actually, each time I quit, it was right before something big, right? Which was. Um, Honestly, it's just it's I don't know. I think it's like kind of one of those just like taking the bulls by the horn and just, you know, like deciding this is it. Um, And it's the decision. You know, I I know that working with clients now, um, online forums that I'm part of, alcohol free forums, and it's that decision. There's never a good time. There's always a work conference or a wedding or a holiday or a it's a stressful time. Like everyone's always going to have that. But when you're ready, you're ready. And I knew I was ready. I knew it was a non-negotiable. Um, and, and that was it. I, I haven't had a drink since, and it's not that life has been easy since, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, 30 days out, 60 days out. And, and I was also quiet about this. You know, I, I did a lot of this of what we talked in the interview, the resources, the herbs, the alpha stem. I was doing the somatic experiencing therapy, but I was quiet about it. You know, I drank alone and I quit alone. And now I'm ready to talk much more about it because, First of all, I, I think, you know, breaking that stigma of it doesn't look any particular way. Um, and, and I would have liked to have heard somebody, um, you know, this kind of story of like, okay, it wasn't a crash and burn, but I've been mm-hmm. starting and stopping and starting and stopping. And I, w- I wanted to hear more of that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm willing to kind of be that voice at this point. Um, and that also there's so many resources and there's so much hope. Of, you know, now that I'm almost two years out, it's not that stress doesn't happen. I got off the call with you guys and, th- you know, there it was, like that anxiety and that rumination bubbled up in my mind. But I just don't have that, like, I want to drink. Like that thought just doesn't come into mind. And it took nine months, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not like a physical, like, oh, I'm shaking and I, I want to drink. But it's just there's this uncomfortable feeling in my body. There's that anxiety and it would be so easy just to numb. And, and the farther I get away from it, the farther I, I don't kind of think of that alcohol is the option. Right. Yeah. Right. So. How does it feel? <laughs> Good. Good. I'm so, so, so happy you decided to, to talk about so it. It's so freeing and it's so important and it's so, it's, it's, oh God, sorry, Laura, I didn't mean to cut you off. I know I just totally did. I was like <laughs> mid swoom, but it's freeing. It's freeing. And it's that place of realizing once you have like, once you have this out there, nobody has anything on you, right? There's no <laughs> hiding anymore. Right. And not only that, it just makes for me, it really makes you more accessible. Like I want to work with somebody that I know has struggled with it. I don't want to work with somebody that just is, you know, like 
seems perfect and has it all together. That those people scare me. <laughs> and I, agree. I mean, my best teachers. It's like I want to hear that. Like I want, I want the dirt under the fingernails. You know, give me the grit of of yeah. what that is. Those are the teachers I resonate with. And that's right. And yeah, I, you know, I love all the information. I love um, everything that we talked about. But it's comfortable for me to stay on on the intellect. Uh, yeah. plane. And I, I knew after our conversation that I, I did that and I sidestepped that. Yeah. Well, I'm so like, I'm just, I'm honored that you shared that here and that you trusted us with it. And I know that you are going to, I mean, you already help, uh, you already did something big by coming on and, and sharing what you did and also providing the resources you did. But I know this even this will help even even more women. Um, and also, it's really cool because you guys get to witness her first interview right after this, but you also get to hear her getting really brave um, and sharing even more um, right here. So it's like it's it's a pretty cool thing. Um, Laura and I are really excited that that um, we get to do this and share this. So. Well, yeah. thank you guys for for offering the space first for me and for the thousands of others. I I just this is what is going to change things. Um, this is the healing of, of being able to hold this space and have some different conversations. And I just, I think what you both are doing is it's just helping. So I know it's helping so many. It's, it's the revolution that we need around this topic. That's right. And you're a part of it. Thank you. Hmm. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jolene. Thanks. Hey, Jolene. Hey, Holly and Laura. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. We're excited to talk to you today. Um, We have so much to cover, and this is a topic that has come up so consistently uh, with people. So we're really excited to have you on. And I think to start, it would just be great to have you walk through your story of how you got to be doing the work that you're doing and sort of where you stand now. Sure, sure. Well, I have been working in corporate wellness since uh, 2004. I certified as a nutritionist in 1999. So I've been part of the functional nutrition world and industry and studying integrative health and mind-body medicine for quite some time. And working with corporate audiences um, from hourly employees to executive teams, uh, engineers, police officers, so all, the, all different types of industries. And um, my signature class throughout all of this that I've taught is the wellness wheel. And it applies in corporate when, um, because, you know, everyone in the corporate site, sites are stressed and want to lose weight and don't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> And so I've, I've used this, uh, what, what I call my wellness wheel, and it has 10 spokes. So it's nutrition, exercise, emotions, relationships, leisure, relaxation, service, money, uh, career, and spirit. And it's resonated and worked really well with all kinds of audiences all across the country, regardless of mm-hmm. um, you know, their job description. And what I do is, because um, I think we have this narrow definition in this country of eat right and exercise. And mm-hmm. certainly, you know, we, we want to do those things as a nutritionist. That's where my foundation is. Um, but I find that it's bigger than that. And this started years ago, even my own experience of actually eating um, a really clean diet, you know, for the first time as I was really studying nutrition. Um, 
And, you know, some GI symptoms went away. I lost some weight. My energy was great. So all of, you know, these great benefits of changing my diet, but other things were going on. Relationships weren't going well. You know, I was struggling financially at that time. And, um, you know, it's this, just because we eat well, it doesn't mean necessarily we're healthy. So I've kind of taken right. that over, over the years into my workshops of what other things nourish us? Um, what's going on with relationships? What's going on with money, relaxation? And um, so that's been the, the crux of my work. And then all of that branches off. We can um, take those, you know, courses and, and dive deeper into each of them. And, and with that, with the functional nutrition, um, about 10 years ago, I started studying more about the brain chemistry and mm-hmm. the, neuro, the neurotransmitters. And we can, we can really get into that and talk a lot about that. Um, because mm-hmm. again, whether somebody's struggling with sleep or sugar or uh, tobacco or alcohol, um, you know, the sleep, sugar, tobacco was what was showing up most in my classes, what um, HR directors were sleep, requesting. Sleep, sugar, tobacco? Correct. Mm-hmm. That's okay. what the HR directors were requesting, um, you know, classes. But the reality okay. is in corporate wellness, we're talking about higher productivity, better relationships, financial fitness, you know, optimizing your happiness, eating better. And, and the unspoken thing in the room is alcohol. Like we don't talk mm-hmm. about that. It's, yeah. kind of, it's still taboo. And, you know, when people are drinking, which they do, you guys know this, you know, in the corporate culture. Yeah. Um, Sleep is affected, weight is affected, mood is affected. And so I'm really passionate about opening that conversation more. And it's also part of my own personal story um, because yeah. I have had anxiety at varying levels throughout my life. Um, it's one, inter- one reason I'm so interested in just all of this work. Um, but yeah. I had to get really honest with myself um, a couple of years ago of just my own alcohol use, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, te- teaching this. And, and again, it wasn't necessarily alcohol focused, but just the overall well-being and, and stress and anxiety. And my anxiety level was there. And... Um, I fit in really well. You know, I, I fit in very well socially and there weren't any friends or family that would have said, oh my gosh, Jolene's just out of control. You know, there was no rock bottom, no yeah. crash and burn, but alcohol was a problem for me. Um, I was using it to regulate anxiety. Yeah. And, um, did you know that? Like, did you have, did you know that link consciously? Um, n- not, I didn't admit it. <laughs> I right. didn't admit yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, 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 once I finally got really honest and kind of looked at my timeline and it connects in with relationships for me, with romantic relationships and the anxiety and the drinking. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, um, kind of a typical, I didn't have a typical story. I wasn't a really a drinker in high school or college, but yep. after a breakup in my late twenties, I was just devastated, like, you know, shattered over it. And I remember, I can remember as clear as day right now, drinking about three quarters of a bottle of wine. And I had drank before, but I didn't really, in that heightened emotional negative, just abandonment, loss state, there was something in my brain, and I really believe this. I see it with others. It's, It's the story that I had to get really honest about. When I drank in that state, it's like my brain clicked (laughs) and it continued then over the years, uh, about 14 years, that when that stress and anxiety came up, that was what I um, reached back out to. And, and it, you know, it was progressing and, but it was that just softening the edges, wanting to numb, kind of quiet my brain at the end of the day. And it was becoming Mm -hmm. more and more, it wasn't even that, you know, necessarily like, oh, things are really bad, but 
I just yeah. want to have a I glass, think glass it's more of a common story than you even think. Like that's a, actually, I know we know a lot of people who actually didn't drink that much until they had something, a lot of times a breakup. Uh, I know a lot of women who, who got divorced or had kids and it's like this stressful emotional situation that starts them off. And I just want to point that out because I think a lot of people don't identify with other people's stories who maybe started off drinking from the beginning. Um, it, it's just, it is a very, very typical story. Well, and I think it's also really interesting because you hear a lot about this, like, um, we, like in, like in Annie Grace's work, right? Like she talks about mm-hmm. how, like, there's this continuum and there's a spectrum and most people stay, you know, in a certain area of it, um, and think that they're, think that they're on some level invulnerable to it. Right. And then mm-hmm. this, this thing happens. And I think it's so interesting that you said you remember exactly that night when you had three quarters of a bottle. Cause, because we cross this line, like it, it's fine. It's fine. It feels, it feels somewhat controlled or whatever. It, it doesn't feel like a huge deal. And then you cross this line and you can actually remember like these certain people, like these certain mm-hmm. times where you just, where, where it shifts and it happens so quickly. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's not to, I mean, somebody could drink three quarters of a bottle of wine and it's not a quote, a problem, like air quote problem. But I think when you're in that heightened emotional state, you're on a really slippery slope. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what um, I really realized. And I agree with you. And I, you know, I'm such a fangirl of the podcast and mm-hmm. all the work you guys do about taking the stigma out. Um, because again, you know, I, I've read so many of the alcohol memoirs. I mean, they're great. It's great writing and I love the stories, but I, I, I don't identify with that, um, with just those, you know, that crash and burn and even that intensity, um, quantity of drinking, but yet it was a problem for me. And I'm doing a lot of coaching now. My coaching has really shifted into specifically working with women with alcohol and sugar. And I, I agree, like, that's the demographic I'm seeing. It's this 35 to 55 year old um, demographic. We don't hear about it because it, 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 you know, they don't necessarily want to go to a 12 step group or right. um, rehab, but it's, it's the same story of having a bottle of wine at night just to numb. And they yeah. look great. The, you know, it's, it's that high functioning, have the job, have a good salary, uh, you know, many are married, but yet say this is a problem and I don't kind of know how to get out of this loop. And that was the loop. Right. That was me. Yeah. yeah. And what you said too is so interesting because you talk about like how you're, you're going around and you're working with these corporate wellness groups and you're, and you yourself are focused on clean eating. And we, we spend all of this time and energy. And I know I did for a long time trying to feel better, like doing cleanses or detoxes or changing our mm-hmm. diet or going to yoga or whatever it is that we do. But a lot of times because our society has really set us up to believe that there's just this spectrum, like there's just right, there's alcoholics, there's people that are really out of control. And those are the ones that, that can't drink, but the rest of us should be able to control it. And we don't really mm-hmm. allow ourselves to look at it. And I remember, and, and even if you read, like if I was just reading Kelly Brogan's book, and it's a great book, but in it, she talks about not drinking for 30 days, but then adding it back in, you know, there's like the, in all these wellness books, rarely, rare is it that you actually hear somebody say like alcohol is a big problem, right? Like alcohol yeah. is something that will keep you from feeling healthy or how alcohol can do this. Like I remember reading a diet book and just, um, and being really grateful, like that it said that I could still drink. Um, oh yeah, 
<laughs> Never did it. Always skip that part of a diet. <laughs> yeah. But but it's true. Like we don't. We really like don't want to infringe on this like normal drinker thing. Like we all want to keep our alcohol. Like that's that's the societal norm. And so it it excludes this group of people that have a you know a problem with it that doesn't necessarily look like what we've been taught is a problem. Yeah. And this group is huge. It's huge of, you know, because we do, and Holly, you've said this in so many ways, so eloquently, um, you know, that you've said it and written it of like, we have this idea of you either drink normally or you're like on the park bench with the round paper bag. But the thing is, is there's this whole spectrum in the middle. And I kind of saw that, you know, I stopped drinking at 43 and I just kind of saw that trajectory of, I was like, continuing to drink like this to another 10 years of 53, like this is just a train bound to nowhere. And, and I, and again, I was fitting in well, and, and I know many people can identify with that. And I just made that choice. I knew in my bones, I, I, I'm, I'm done. And, and I had stopped other times before. So it wasn't just kind of a one and done. And, and I could slide under the radar. I was like, Oh, I'm doing a yoga teacher training. You know, I'm doing a paleo challenge. And because I was in wellness, people didn't really question it. And it, it is an easy um, way to go off the radar a little bit and people don't bug you about it. But then I would always pick back up and it, it would become more. And so I just, when I really put my timeline and just honest with myself, like I wasn't public about it, but really honest about that trajectory, I was like, where this trajectory is heading, I am, I, I'm stopping. I, and, and what I know, yeah. and we can get into all of this, what I know about the physiology and the trauma research. And I think the more that I really was studying that and diving into that, it's like knowing this stuff, I, I just do not want to keep drinking. Yeah. That's awesome. It is. It is. And you're right. It's so, such a huge group of people. It's there was, I don't know if you ever caught that article that was, um, and it's a, it was published in the New York times and it said 90% of problem drinkers are not alcoholics, right? Like, so 90%, so like, which is, and it's 29% of all drinkers. So 70% of Americans drink 29% of those abuse alcohol. So it's, um, it's a pool of 51, 51 million potential individuals that <laughs> exactly that's what I'm saying it's, it's, it's a huge oh it's a huge group and women are finding me you know and now I'm doing the one-on-one coaching um with that and and I don't identify um as an addict or an alcoholic I identify with um anxiety you know I I have pretty severe anxiety taking the alcohol out has helped tremendously um, yeah so talk about that like when did you find when did you sort of put it together um because anxiety for me too is the thing there's lots of things, but there, it's the one thing I can think about and immediately recall in my body, um, in relationship to drinking. And it will remind me, you know, no, that's, you don't want to go there. It makes it worse. Yeah. Um, you know, where this, um, kind of started opening up for me was with, uh, yoga and I was doing some yoga and trauma, um, training. I went through the off the mat into the world, um, program Wow. with, with Sean Korn and Suzanne Sterling and Hala Corey. Um, and I did that about five years ago. And Hala, um, she's a somatic experiencing therapist and a yoga teacher. And she's part of, yeah. part of that training. And I really gra- immediately gravitated and resonated with her when she started talking about the brain and the stress response. And, yeah. um, you know, that was five years ago. So it, it, t- it takes some time. Like you kind of have to digest it and absorb it. But the more I went into that and did some trainings and some work with her, um, that was where, you know, the piece about the anxiety of, and, and if you want, I can talk a little bit more about kind of that stress response. Yeah. So I want to make sure, so is there anything else about, you know, I, I want to make sure we don't 
skip your story, but there's so much goodness we want to talk about in, in what you've learned and what you study now. So it's up to you. Um, you have now not, you've, you cut alcohol out and you've been alcohol free for almost two years. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what, um, yeah, talk about that. I mean, talk about the stress response, but maybe I would love to know what your experience is what has been with anxiety when you first cut it out and when you, you know, through those two years, because in my experience, it got much, much worse Yes, before it got better. Yes. My and experience. I think people get really um, frightened. I think it brings a lot of people back to drinking because of that. Yep. Um, yes. And I was the same. And that's what um, I, you know, I love working with people who are in that place. Um, mm. You know, Elizabeth Vargas did that 2020 interview a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and she talks about her anxiety. And, you know, I really identify, um, you know, she's talking about she's on the air and, you know, gripping kind of the table. And, you know, yeah. I'm a public speaker, I'm a trainer. And, and the benefit of anxiety is I can do public speaking. You know, everyone's, mm. everyone says like, that's the greatest fear. But I can regulate that where I can stand and feel like I'm going to throw up. I'm nauseous. I don't feel well, but you won't know it. <laughs> and actually, I'm very comfortable public speaking. Oh, you mean like you're good at hiding it? I'm good at hiding it, but okay. that's a problem because yeah. then it's, it, it's locked in my physiology and then it just gets worse. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I really, really identify um, with her. And so stopping drinking... Um, it, the anxiety comes up even more. And like Elizabeth Vargas says, 60% of women who are drinking, are, um, they, they also have anxiety. So it goes, mm -hmm. it goes hand in hand. And I, um, you know, I use some different um, herbal remedies. I know that the GABA in my brain is low, and that's something that I work with on clients. I have a, a quiz to type the different neurotransmitters and see how deficient. And the questions are things like, you know, I have insomnia, I have road rage, I have, you know, like yes, no questions. And then yeah. coming up on a scale of mild, moderate, or more severe. And my GABA, um, you know, is low. And that's, that's the neurotransmitter that is just responsible for like calming, kind of your brain is in a real rhythmic, relaxed state. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very typical for people to have low GABA to then reach for, um, well, two substances, alcohol and marijuana. And, and this is a big thing, you know, why I want to speak out about it a lot more, because I just do not believe in this. Um, you, you don't have willpower or there's something wrong with your personality or um, it's, it's physiology. So when that GABA is low, the body is trying to regulate and, you know, we reach for the closest thing that it works. You know, a glass or two of wine immediately, it's, it's the best feeling in the world when you have anxiety. But because it releases GABA into your, it, it, it um, hyper-releases hyper GABA into your system. Is that right? Alcohol it's, does? It's, it's a false positive. It doesn't release GABA in and of itself, but it makes you feel like, GAB, like that GABA feeling. It actually depletes GABA even more. So then we get into a vicious cycle wow. of... We want that feeling. The alcohol gives, it mimics the feeling. And then it goes, so then we just get in a vicious cycle of needing it more and more and more. When we take it out, we can actually start to build our GABA receptors back up. Wow. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious of what, so you, so how, what was it for you that allowed you to remove alcohol from your life? Um and, and I'm assuming that's also what informs how you work with people, individuals now. It's just is through your own experience of what worked for you. So you mean the actual kind of tactics and, and things mm -hmm. that, that yeah. I used? Yeah. Um, so I use, there, there's a couple herbs that boost GABA. Um, and I personally use those, especially, you know, the first 30 days and even um, 
couple, I don't know, six months, not as frequently, but the first 30 days, like three times a day. And um, I was putting in uh, uh, lemon balm, passion flower. Um, have you guys tried those or experimented with that? Mary Vance has talked about passion flower. I know that. Yeah, they, um, they you know, it's, it's an herbal uh, formula. You can take it in liquid or capsule and it boosts up the GABA in the brain. And I also used uh, L-theanine, which is in green tea. And I would just open those capsules and put them under my tongue. Um, mm. You can take GABA capsules themselves. There's some controversy in functional nutrition if it crosses the, the blood-brain barrier. Um, I think high-quality, pharmace- um, like nutraceutical-grade companies, yes, they do cross the, the blood-brain barrier. So I took those like three times a day, um, and it really helps. I mean, it really gives and and it truly then builds up the GABA. The alcohol does not build up GABA, but the herbs, they become adaptogens and they start to help the body repair and the brain repair. So those those were some things that I relied on in the beginning and they helped me tons. I don't take them at all now. Um, I, you know, my anxiety is so leveled out. Um, you know, I feel like my kind of biochemistry has balanced so much more. And I, I mm-hmm. sometimes if I have a trouble sleeping, I'll get up and, you know, take those, but but I don't take them regularly now. Okay. Are there other things that you did too? Did you have like a planned quit? No, (laughs) no. I, um, you know, and it goes back to relationships for me. So it started with that relationship and ended of, you know, I was kind of in the state of, I want really connected, intimate relationships on a romantic level. And was kind of, you know, looking at some different things and how other people were doing their relationships and admittedly being a little judgy about that. And what do you mean? Judging of their level of alcohol intake and saying, in my own head, saying, do you not see like the connection (laughs) of why this relationship (laughs) isn't working? And (laughs) and then I was like, I got to turn that finger back on myself. Right. And so that was that was kind of the, the real why. And I wasn't open about that in the beginning. Um, but in my own mind, and then I kind of put that timeline together and it's like for what I want with relationships and connection and just what I want to do in the world and being effective, alcohol is not going to get me to those places. And, um, there was one Saturday I, you know, was drinking and just felt awful, you know, for the next couple of days. Cause I can't, t- I don't tolerate alcohol. Well, it takes the, the immediate anxiety off. But long-term, I just, you know, the next day I don't feel well. And I just, there was just something that clicked in my head. And I said, I'm done. I'm just done. I've done this kind of starting and stopping before, kind of this bargaining, you know, back and forth with myself. And, yep. um, and I was done and, you know, friends were like, well, what are you drinking? Are you, and I'm like, oh, I'm taking, kind of taking a break. And, but I knew <laughs> I was done and I haven't had, I a, drink. I haven't had a drink yeah. since. That's great. So I know I, what I don't want to get, yeah. I, I do, I want to go on to all these other questions we have, but how has it been so, like socially for you? Like without like just saying, I don't drink, has that changed a lot of your social relationships or is that all pretty much remain the same? It's, you know, it's pretty much remained the same. Um, again, you know, I, I have some friends who aren't big drinkers. Um, I have some others that are, um, but it's just, this was kind of my decision and they, they kind of left it alone. And for me, it's, it's always been this for me, you know, it's about the event. It's about the connection. That was my why for stopping. I, yeah. I, I want a different level of connection with people. In the two years that I haven't drank, I, I don't have one experience where somebody has hassled me or given me a hard time. Oh, and, wow. and, I'm, and I'm a little indignant about it because 
you know, in the past when I would stop, that's, that is why I started again, because I wasn't really sure within my own self. And so I would let, you know, people like, well, why aren't you drinking? I'm like, well, I want, I, I want to socially drink. And I would let that then I'd, be, I'd start drinking again. And so I'm yeah. kind of, I'm like, you, I, I won't let that happen again. And I think because I'm so clear and solid in that I don't drink, I just don't, I don't talk about it much. I don't bring it up much. And I just feel like other people kind of leave it alone. So if I'm out like at a networking or something, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm headed to the bar. Can I get you something? I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm good right now. And they just, you know, move on. Or um, yeah. if I'm holding a glass, you know, people don't know if there's, if it's vodka and soda or if it's just soda, soda water. So it's it, it's been relatively um, easy, but again, I was never I, I never had a reputation for being a partier. I so it wasn't like this big dramatic shift big switch up. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. yeah, okay. And it sounds like you had a balance of people in your life, um, drinkers, not drinkers, people who you know. Whereas a lot of people like myself, I really only put people around me who would let me drink the way I wanted. So I think that makes a difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I grew up in a family that um, weren't big drinkers. You know, my parents will have like a glass of wine on Christmas Eve. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's how I grew up. <laughs> so strange. It, it, is, it is strange. Um, but and I think because of even that polarity of like how I was drinking, it was getting really removed from um, from kind of how I grew up. Your baseline. Yeah. Yeah. I love and then we can move on. I love that you said and I think it's so wise that you identified this because for me, it was definitely the opposite that you wanted deeper connection and that you knew that alcohol had to be removed in order for you to do that. And I think what I thought, um, and I know a lot of others thought is I thought that alcohol was giving me that connection. Like I didn't see that. I thought there that connection would be impossible without it. So I think it's so wise and it's so it's refreshing to hear you say that. I mean, it's really, that is not a common um, light bulb for people to have. No, it's the opposite. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, being being inebriated is one thing. Being vulnerable is completely different. And we think when we're inebriated, we're vulnerable and we're not. And and that, like Annie Grace speaks so well to that. Of The, the irony is, is that our senses are dulled um, mm. when we're drinking and we're not connected. I mean, look at people, how disc- you can see in their eyes. And so all the senses are down. Um, the sense of sight and taste and smell and, and, you know, we, we lose all that. And I, I just got to the point of knowing what I know about yoga and the body. I was like, I, I don't want to keep putting this in my body to live the life that I want to live. Yeah. it's yeah. awesome. So, so tell us, um, quickly what functional nutrition quickly. actually actually <laughs> means. Yeah, if you could do that in like a minute. No. What functional nutrition is and what trauma theory, um, the surrounding brain chemistry means. Sure. Well, functional nutrition is using nutrients in a really functional way. Um, and it, it gets a little bit out of like the diet plan. So it's, it's looking at things of what's depleted, you know, is GABA depleted, is B12 depleted, and then what are then the symptoms from that? So often, you know, like B12, um, we absorb it in the gut. When we drink a lot of alcohol, eat a lot of sugar, the absorption of B12 is compromised. And right. um, that's why I used to pop B12. <laughs> I didn't know why someone just told me you take these and you won't be hungover. Yeah, because when we when we drink a lot, we we just tend to have low levels of B twelve and the doesn't symptoms, work. By the way, <laughs> the symptoms of what you mean popping the the B twelve didn't work. No, if you drink, you know, three bottles of wine, nothing's going to actually 
keep you from being hungover. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, so, so um, when we're low in B12, some of the common symptoms are feeling depressed, um, being tired and having really low energy. And, you know, sometimes then we attach it to, well, psychology, I need to buck up, I need to, Mm -hmm. you know, think more positive, because I'm feeling depressed. And it's like, no, actually, if we go in and use some functional nutrients to bring balance back to the body, then that depression goes away. And it has nothing to do necessarily with like the psychology. So I always yeah. start at the physiology and, and got interested in this even before I stopped drinking. I was aware of some rehab centers who were using nutrients. Um, you know, people would come in off of drugs or alcohol in the first two weeks. They're giving them fatty acids. They're giving them minerals. They're giving them amino acids. Then they start kind of looking at the childhood or the emotional stuff or, or mm-hmm. all of that. But it's just like when you have a cold you, or the flu, you just don't, it's like, oh, I can't even think. I can't even focus. And it's the same way when your body is off and we often don't connect it, that it's, it's physical stuff and we can bring it back into balance. And then we feel so much better emotionally. Yeah. That's a huge, huge, huge thing. So that's, that's functional nutrition. Um, we can, uh, there's some specific things I want to talk about, but I, I want to talk about the trauma piece because I think it's the foundation yeah. to all of this. Yep. And um, so with the yoga, I really started, um, you know, discovering some of this and, and learning about the research. And there's a study called the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Have you guys heard about that? No, I haven't. Have you all? No. Um, so this is, I, I just think this is the, the core of everything. <laughs> and it's, it's a really interesting study, um, whether we're talking about weight loss, corporate wellness um, things, or brain chemistry and the craving brain. And it's the biggest public health study that was ever done in the U.S. And it was done in the mid-90s in San Diego um, with the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And um, it started out as a weight loss study, and it was they were reducing healthcare costs before it was cool to reduce healthcare costs, and having really good results with people losing large amounts of weight. So you had to come into the study needing to lose thirty pounds or more, but um, the bulk of the people who were doing it were needed to lose like hundred or two hundred pounds, and they wow. would do that in fifty-two weeks. They lost a large amount of weight. But then what happened was there was quite a few people who would quickly regain the weight. And this is the age-old story, right? You know, everybody wants to lose weight. Why can't they stick with it? And then they gain it back or gain back more. And so from a nutrition perspective, I um, got really interested in, in this study. And the researchers, the doctors started asking, bringing people back who gained all the weight back. And, you know, they were kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall saying, what's going on here? And they started with like, how much did you weigh when you were born? And what was your birth weight? How much did you weigh in seventh grade? How much did you, you know, weigh when you got married? And um, one question he, um, the researcher meant to say, um, how, how old were you when you had your first sexual experience? And he okay. slipped and said, how much did you weigh? And the woman he was- When you had your first sexual experience? Sexual experience. How and much the, did you weigh? Okay. And the woman said 40 pounds and she burst into tears. Oh. And this started uncovering, and the, the doctor, his um, name is Vincent um, Folletti, and he was like, okay, this is weird because in medical school, they told us incest is really rare. It's like one in a thousand women. It just doesn't happen. I, I just met, I've never met anyone in you know, my 20 years of practice. And so he started asking this question to other patients who were quickly regaining the weight back. And the same thing was coming up. They were saying yes. 
and to, you know, some abuse early on. He, at that point, he was focused on the sexual abuse, but it goes beyond that. Yeah. So yeah. then he took himself out. He's like, okay, maybe I'm biased. Maybe I need to get out of this. And he brought in other researchers and they found the same thing. So he, he had like 200, um, you know, people. He had some good data. He went to the National Association of Obesity Conference. He's like, I've really got something here. He stood up in front of all the doctors, mid-90s. And he said, here, you know, here's what I found. And they listened, you know. It was real quiet. One of the docs at the end stood up and he's like, well, you know, if you really understand your patients and understand this, you will know that they're not, they're lying to you to just kind of give a justification of why they're gaining all this weight. (gasps) And another doctor that happened to be in the audience was from the CDC. He was an epidemiologist, um, Robert Anda. And he went up to Filetti afterwards and he said, as an epidemiologist, you know, when, when you have a bigger group of people, we can prove this more. And Filetti said, that's no problem. I'm with Kaiser in San Diego. 50,000 people come through the door every year. Let's do it. So together, they put together the study. Um, at first, they had 17,000 people in 1995. Wow. And then the questions they put together, there were 10 questions. So um, before, between the age of, um, you know, zero and 18, did you experience sexual abuse? Did you experience emotional abuse, uh, physical abuse? Did you experience emotional neglect, physical neglect? And that's that kind of thing of like, um, you know, sarcastic kind of, you know, the violent words, the unpredictable, um, that kind of stuff. That's that, you know, neglect, not really um, physically there, but emotionally not there and and mean um, growing up in those environments. And then also looking at was there divorce, um, death, or a parent just left? What did a parent um, have substance abuse uh, disorder? Was, did you witness the mother being abused? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did one of the parents have mental illness or was anyone in the family um, incarcerated, gone to prison? And what they found was this was prevalent. And what was interesting yeah. about, so pe- prevalent in the fact that people had four or more on this. So let's say somebody said, yes, I witnessed my mother um, being treated violently or being you know, abused. That would be a score of one. So people who had a score of four or more was very, very common. And what was interesting was this was not those people. This was... Kaiser Permanente, San Diego, white upper middle class, 70% of them are college educated. They all had jobs. They had great health care. And so it turned into this this huge study. Um, They followed it for 20 years. They follow then the people who were in the study and connect it with then adult um, disease. Um, So people who had four or more uh, ACE scores tend to have a life expectancy uh, less or, you know, die 20 years earlier than people who don't have that. Uh, don't have ACEs, uh, twice as likely to develop cancer, one in six people, um, heart disease. And then the addiction side, one in six people uh, tend to be smokers and seven times more likely to drink alcoholically. And I'm going to put alcoholically, you know, in air quotes. Um, So it's not just because some people don't drink and smoke and and use addictive substances, but sometimes people, you know, have heart disease. They're like, where'd it come from? I'm a vegetarian. I do yoga. But when we start looking at the trauma, and that's what Hala introduced to me with the yoga of Halakori, Halakori, mm-hmm. yeah. the trauma in the body. So this study is it's a game changer. Um, whether we're talking about kind of onset, you know, adult disease, autoimmune disease, or substance abuse, and then people like uh, Gaber Mate. I know you guys, you know who Gaber Mate is in Canada. Mm-hmm. So he got involved, and um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's in... Yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to say. This sounds like... Um, I've been reading that book. Yeah. The, so the, body, the body, body Keeps, body the, keeps score. the Score. Yeah. Yeah. I love that book. So they, um, they're very aware of this ACE study and, and taking you know, it to the next level. 
Um, but what, what, what it really says, it's not like, oh, well, I had trauma or something bad happened in my childhood, so I'm doomed. No. What this says is that the, the immune response, the brain response, the stress response, like it, it goes to an on switch. And so we're in this hypervigilant mode with yes. what, you know, the anxiety with, um, you know, different things. And so again, we're looking at the body. We're looking at the physiology. And, um, and how that kind of changes even the, the DNA structure. But we can unwire that. We can, you know, unchange that. And so that's what's really interesting. It's not that somebody is a bad person or they're doomed, but it's just that their, their physical response is in a stress response. And, you know, we can do things to stop that. Yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, I, this is awesome. I mean, I, I, Holly, do you have anything to say? I mean, I, I could go in a bunch of different directions, but I want I want you to I want you to because I can tell you have something to say. So you say it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, this is something that the tr- this is all things that I've learned in the past year um, at the very surface level. Like I'm just starting to understand, and I know there's so much curiosity. I mean, just um, this week in our in our Facebook group, there people were asking to talk more deeply about the connection to sexual trauma and and um, addiction. And so I guess, you know, I would want you to focus on sort of how you how you have used this with your own work and and working with people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, like how you distill this into into what you what people can do. Yeah. So here, so here's the good news. And I'm all about the, what do you do? You know, what, what's the practical steps on Thursday when you're in this state, you know, how, how do you yeah. do this? So as part of all this research, this is the good news. Cause I know that's kind of heavy, you know, to talk, to hear about sexual abuse and, and the trauma in the body. But what also came up in this research is there is a gene called the orchid gene. So people either have the orchid gene or the dandelion gene. And it's also known as the sensitivity gene. So we truly have a sensitivity gene. There's no such thing as an addiction gene. It doesn't exist. Like I can't go draw my blood and then somebody's going to say, oh, you have a gene. It, it, that's, it's, we don't have it. But we do have a sensitivity gene. And people will say this, you know, musicians and artists and act perform, yeah. they'll, they'll say, I'm more sensitive. And, you know, but they're heavy drug or alcohol users. And it yeah. truly, and it's a physiological thing. And so they, they talk about the orchid and the dandelion. So a dandelion will grow up in the middle of the crack in the sidewalk and it doesn't need to be, people step on it and it bounces back up. And, you know, all, there's no way an orchid can survive in that environment. The orchid yeah. needs more of a greenhouse environment. So this is the good news. That um, so often people who have that orchid gene, that sensitivity gene, um, first of all, it doesn't have to be tripped. Um, we, you know, somebody can walk around with, with a sensitivity gene and not drink too much, not use marijuana, not um, work compulsively because their environment is very supportive. It's a refuge. It's a holding environment. They're very connected. Um, you know, there's, there's just, it's predictable, all of that kind yeah. of thing. Right. But if they're tripped from their environment, it's all about the environment. So if there's, and especially early on, because as the brain's developing, the hippocampus isn't online, the brain is very um, vulnerable. And if so, if we're in the, these environments that are unpredictable, that are stressful, that may be violent, um, then that gene is tripped. But the good news is people who have that orchid sensitivity gene also have much, much higher levels of neuroplasticity. 
Ooh. That's what I was going to say. So this is, have wow. you ever watched? You're blowing my mind. Okay. Have you ever listened to um, Dr. Kevin McCauley? Do you know who yes. he is? Yeah. Yeah. And I love it how it's the same thing he explains. The same thing. There's no alcoholic gene, but there are different genes that um, are that are highly correlated. And he talks about it in terms of soft rock and hard rock. And I love his explanation in it, right? Because soft rock, it gets formed, it's shaped by its experiences, but also soft rock is, if soft rock is able to adapt and is able able to um, essentially be able to, like, for instance, if we're talking about addiction, is, is able to uh, experience addiction and recover from addiction, then that that soft rock also then passes on those adaptability genes. So it's it's also, it, it's the same thing of saying, like, um, it's, it's yes, it's one thing to be sensitive, but also we have, we're, we're just, we're able to, if we're able to work with that sensitivity, then we are, then it's we're favored by nature, right? Because we're able to adapt. Exactly. Exactly. That it's, that's exactly right. And so this is why it's so exciting. And there's so much hope. And, the, and these guys are onto it. It's not mainstream, but it's, it's coming. We're going to know about it. But then back to how do I work with people? And it, this is where the rubber meets the road of things like yoga and breath work and nutrients mm-hmm. and what we know about these nourishing practices with you know, leisure and play and connections to people. Because we, we all know this. You know, but, but it's like, well, but I don't have time or I'm busy or it's, it's, it's more of a luxury or self care. No, this is, this is where it's an absolute necessity because it will literally change your brain. It rewires your brain. We know it. It's the neuroplasticity and people who have been through, you know, these things or who are struggling with a craving brain, these practices, and then there's many, many choices, but pick yeah. something because it absolutely will rewire your brain to a place where you can really thrive. And, and also, you know, putting yourself back into really healthy environments. This is that connection with, you know, good, healthy, supportive people. <laughs> That's where I knew about that research. And um, so there's incredible hope, incredible hope. So uh, can I just a uh, point of clarification? And we will write some of this. I'm going to ask that you that will that you put some of this into for our notes, because there's a lot of like detail here that I want we, to make sure people get. But is it that people either have the or either have the orchid gene or the um, dandelion gene? Is it an either or? or is Correct. maybe people at both? Correct. Yep, it's an either or. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And and I, I want to give um, so there's two examples of uh, Gaber Mate. He was here in uh, Colorado in Boulder in August, and I, I did an all day workshop with him. He's amazing, and he's he's one of my kind of teachers. And he mm-hmm. gives two examples of just kind of dialing back some of like the heaviness of like sexual abuse trauma. You know, because sometimes people may hear that and they'll be like, first of all, that's really hard to take in. You know, because it may trigger something. But also, it's like, well, I don't identify with that. You know, I don't have sexual abuse trauma. Yeah. But right. one of his examples, so um, Gabor lives in Canada, but he's, hung, he's from Hungary. And he was a two-month-old baby in 1944 when the Nazis invaded Budapest. And he doesn't remember. When you're two months old, your hippocampus isn't online. The hippocampus is the memory um, portion. So sometimes, you know, people will be like, I don't know why I'm knee-jerking at something or I'm reacting or I'm triggering. Mm-hmm. And Sean Korn talks about all of that in her training of like, what's the trigger that's being triggered in your body? I'm being flooded yeah. with all this anxiety, with this rage, but I don't really know where it's coming from. And so Gower's example of he was two months old and his mother called the pediatrician and said, can you come um, see Gabor? He, he won't stop crying. 
And the pediatrician said, yes, I can come visit him, but all of my Jewish babies are crying because, the, you know, the mothers are so stressed. So the baby's reacting to the mother, that, and that's what I'm talking about, about the environment. So it can be yeah. these, these little pieces. It doesn't have to be war veterans, PTSD or, you know, rape. It's these things. And another example of um, the University of Washington did a study where they took babies who um, came, they were six months old and their mothers had uh, postpartum depression. And then they took another group of babies, they were six months old and their mothers didn't have postpartum depression. And they did brain scans on both sets of babies. They could tell by the scan of the baby which baby went with which mother. So they're oh six months God. old. There's no language, there's no intellect, there's no understanding, but the brain is adapting to, you know, that mother and her own trauma and her own, um, you know, depression and not being able to attune. And they're not, they're not abusing the babies. They love the babies, but. Right. But the but, body keeps the score. Exactly. The knows. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think Sean Korn came on and, and she was the, sort of the first person to, who, who, turned me on to this idea of trauma is not so, not shock trauma. Like trauma isn't always shock trauma. It's so often just experience of our everyday of everyday life. And and now that you've added this piece about having the orchid gene, you know, you are more sensitive to your environment. So you your brain could be traumatized more easily. Exactly. Exactly. So then going back to kind of the how, you know, what do we do with this? There's this kind of three, I look at the body, I look at the physical um, areas and the amygdala is one that I focus on. That's that fight, flight, freeze. That's the alarm center in the brain. brain. Um, And, you know, we, we talk about, it's like, well, logically, I know I should stop drinking or logically I should, you know, not eat this, but that's the prefrontal cortex. And the amygdala does not understand language. The amygdala is keeping us alive. It's the survival mechanism. That's the part when a car, if we're on the sidewalk and a car comes charging, you know, racing towards us, there's no logical, oh, the car is coming. I'm going to pick up my left foot and like, you're, you're out. And that's right. the same part of the brain that's online, that's, that on switch has been flipped on. That is the drink. If people, you know, say, I feel like I don't have an off switch with my drinking. It's being run by the amygdala. And, and I'll, I'll come back of talk specifics. So I look at the amygdala, then I look at the polyvagal nerve. And that's also, um, it's a cranial nerve kind of right behind the jaw. And those nerve bundles go down to the abdomen, to the gut. Yeah. So there's a huge gut brain connection. So I look at the gut and then the psoas muscle, um, which is, you know, kind of oh. in the pelvic hip region. We talk about this in yoga. So I, we can kind of go yeah. through those because that gets into the specifics um, and it brings in the functional nutrition. It brings in the lifestyle well-being. But like, what do you do to calm down and rewire this stress response? Okay. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Go. Okay. I, I want to stop before we move on. Just because my, I've been a critic, like I, I love Gabor's work. Um, I get a little lost in saying, it, sometimes we, we say it's all about trauma, I, a lot of times what I start to hear, like I've heard, I've heard Gabor talk before. I've, you know, I've read his books. I've, I've followed him closely. And sometimes I feel it's oversimplifying it to say it's just trauma. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear your opinion on that because I think trauma is an incredibly important part of this. It's a huge part of this. Big T trauma, little T trauma, releasing that trauma and working with the body and also working with the body and the gut, like, uh, in terms of like eating right. And, but, but, 
I feel sometimes like we just end up over here and all, and we get lost in trauma land and we say everything is trauma rather than it's also the fact that like there's societal factors in play and there's, you know, there's peers, uh, there's peer stuff. There's the fact that our world is crazy and chaotic. There's the fact that we have, you know, we're being asked too much. There's, you know, the fact that we get hit with all these advertisements and that we're on, um, you know, our computers all the time and the way that we, we are in this world and, um, you know, and, and also what happens to the brain once we get into an addictive loop and what happens once craving and what, and how the brain chemistry changes once we start, um, once we start to rely on alcohol and it moves into addiction. And so I'm just curious of what your thoughts are on, on, on that, on, do we sometimes get too caught up in looking at trauma and just say, if we just release the trauma, um, and (laughs) just worked with the trauma, then we'd be fine without taking into consideration the practicality of what's going on. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I, I, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, whether it's, you know, food and weight loss or any kind of, um, health thing. I don't think there's any absolutes. Um, so across the board, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm specifically kind of telling that story. So it is heavily trauma focused and Gabor s- certainly sticks, you know, the sword in the sand. That's his work. Um, but I don't think there's any absolutes. So sometimes it's, you know, about more like the physiology, like just blood sugar. Um, there's something that we know called pyroluria where um, when zinc and it, it, it's, it's a hemoglobin um, process and in that hemoglobin um, kind of mechanism in the body, it binds to a lot of zinc and B6 in a lot of people. And when that binding happens, then zinc and B6 are low and then people can feel more anxious. They can, And so again, it's like mm-hmm. a nutrient thing. So there can be just body stuff. There can be emotional stuff, which is trauma. Um, but you know, but not for everyone. And then, like you say, like just the environmental stuff and just habits and routines and, um, you know, who we're hanging out with and and cognitive dissonance, right? Totally. totally. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make that point because when we, whenever I start, like I went to, there was one time I was was listening to Gabor talk and this one woman stood up in in the audience and she said that she had a three-year-old addict on her hand and she was saying it was because her parents were addicts and she was already seeing the behaviors being demonstrated. And I think sometimes when we get too pigeonholed into talking about this, we're looking at people and we're saying, well, they're already going to be that. And then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm just really mind. I love talking about the trauma. I think it's such an important piece and I don't want to undermine it, but I start to get really uncomfortable when it went like, I just want to make sure just for the sake of, you know, of whoever is listening to say, it's not only that it's so much more, um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And and again, the whole goal of this is not to like, because sometimes we get caught in that thing of like, oh, I got to fix this and I got to fix this. And yes. and I mean, ultimately, like no one's perfect. That None of us are going to live forever. The goal is not to just have this kind of perfect mind body. And so we have to be sensitive to that too. Yeah. The idea is yeah. just like, what, you know, what can, where can we live just in a little bit of balance um, so that we can just kind of, you know, thrive, but, but things happen. And, and yeah, so there's no absolutes on any of this. Thank Thank you. Okay, cool. Thank you. I just wanted to make that point. All right. Now I want to hear about those three things, especially the, especially the psoas. So, all right. Yeah. Okay. So we, yeah, we can start there. Um, so this is Peter Levine's work and I, you guys Mm -hmm. have talked about Peter Levine before, right? Yeah. Yeah, We have the tiger. tiger, Yeah. I actually have a a therapist that I've worked with in my program that comes on and talks about like, she's a, she's trained in, in somatic method. And so yeah, or somatic experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I love somatic experiencing. That's also been another part, um, you know, piece for me since I've stopped drinking, I've done some somatic experience in therapy and it's been really really helpful um, to do that so uh, are you familiar then with uh, TRE trauma releasing exercises 
No. In theory, I am. In theory. Like, I know that, but I don't have any idea what that actually it's, looks is like. Is it where you actually go back and you you complete the complete the cycle of the energy that got stuck? Yeah. So, the, and there's, there's actual physical, um, exercises to do to invoke kind of that shaking, that yeah. tremor in the body and let mm-hmm. it shake out of the muscles and the fascia. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so real quickly, Peter Levine's theory. And, and again, you know, I'm just talking different theories. It's not like this is the end all be all, <laughs> but Peter yeah. Levine's theory is, um, all animals, humans and, and animals have, um, a fight, a flight or a freeze response. So Holly, let's say you say like something really vicious to me, like you just, you know, attack me with words right now. So I could punch you. (laughs) Um, I could fight. I could run away from you or I could freeze, which um, is typically what I personally do. And I think a lot of people do because it's just not appropriate to hit people or to get up and, you know, run. So we freeze and, you know, ooh, that that hurt. Like that was really mean, but I'm going to intellectualize. I'm going to, I'm just going to, you know, try not to think about it. But now that's in my body. And we know with animals, you know, in the wild, like if they're being chased by a predator, um, they can't fight the predator because it's too big. So they're running from the predator. But then sometimes they'll freeze and try to blend in with the habitat, you know, calm their heart rate. They're really quiet. And hopefully that predator will move on. And then that animal stands up. Peter Levine has videos of this. And they will shake. But when they slow it down, they're finishing that fleeing response. Um, They're running. And that adrenaline, that cortisol then is moving through their body. They finish the process. Um, they go home. They're not neurotic. They don't beat their wife. They don't drink. And they don't think about it again. And so Peter Levine yeah. teaches these – actually, it's not um, – it's his concept, but it's a guy named um, David Burcelli. And he teaches these exercises. I like to call them tension-releasing exercises because, you know, trauma is a heavy word. Um, yeah. So tension-releasing exercises. And there's like about nine of them. You can do them anywhere um, just to give you like – a visual of what one is, is you, you do a wall squat. And so you don't have to stay at like total 90 degrees where your thighs are burning, but you can kind of slide up a little bit on the wall. So, you know, your legs aren't burning, but the, the legs will then will start to shake and you let them shake for about five minutes. And there's other exercises you go through, but that shaking, it, it goes into then that psoas muscle. Cause there's a lot of research, the psoas muscle, right? Kind of in the pelvis, the hips, it gets really wound tight when we freeze. Um, and again, just freezing, like Holly says something really mean to me, I, I freeze on that. And so when you, and I don't have to know what it is, I don't have to analyze it, you know, when I'm doing these exercises, but it shakes and relaxes the body. Um, and it looks kind of weird. I don't really do it in front of people, but, um, <laughs> you know, when, when I do it, I sleep really well. And it really just kind of helps because my anxiety is like that. It, it's a real body anxiety. Me so I, I guess the best way is, you know, people, if you're public speaking, when you feel kind of like your hands are clammy and it's like your leg actually shaking, you feel a little nauseous. That's what my anxiety feels like to me. And when I do trauma release and exercises to work on that psoas muscle, it really, it calms that, that shake out of the body. It's, I mean, this is why yoga works, even if it's by accident for a lot of people, because they release the, we hold these postures and release this. I mean, that's been my experience, but a lot of times we don't even either as teachers or as students have any idea why it's making us feel so much better. Yeah. There's, um, Stephanie Snyder has a really great class. She worked with, I don't know if you know who Thomas Hanna is. 
No, I haven't heard of him. He is, um, he's a, he's a somatic guy. Um, but she incorporates some of his methods into a yoga class. She's got one yoga. I went through her training and she did this with us for like an hour. Um, and it was interesting because I was trying to be meditative. And as I'm doing these exercises that are somatic, they're, they're meant to, they're like targeted to release. I had a flashback, like a clear flashback from when I was five and I punched a kid in his kidneys and, um, or in his back and he had diabetes. And I was just plain. I was rough. I was I was roughhousing with a bunch of boys. It wasn't like I went up and just socked him, but I was like we were we were roughing around, and I, I punched him in his back. And then his mom came out and screamed at me and said he had diabetes, and I you know hurt him, and um and it just you know it was awful. Like everyone looked at me like I was the devil. And so yeah. I had this clear flashback of it, and then I tried to not think about. It. I tried to get back to the meditative part of like you know like what I thought I was supposed to be doing, but that was like uh you know like at the end of it we were talking about it, and that was like what was meant to happen is you're releasing this stuff. And so anyway, she, the, she has a great practice that's like specifically for somatic release. Um, it's on yoga glow and it's called restore and, um, heal body, uh, your body, mind and spirit. Um, and I do it like uh, occasionally, but there are like, I, I, I've experienced it and it's legit. Powerful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have to look that up. It's another, yeah. Uh, there's so many resources out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, okay. So keep going on that. Um, Well, so Laura, you're absolutely right with the yoga then. So going back up to the amygdala in, um, you know, in the brain, that, that watchtower and Bessel van der Kolk, again, his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he, he Mm -hmm. does the research. So he has people do yoga. He's looking at kind of their stress response. And we know this with meditation studies too, that people who do eight weeks of meditation, and there's all different types, you know, this is, you get to choose what resonates with you, but we know that meditation starts to shrink the amygdala, which is a good thing. We don't want the amygdala Mm -hmm. inflamed and on fire and running the show. And yoga does the same thing. It starts to regulate the amygdala, especially when we connect the breath with the movement. And it also increases GABA. Um, so yoga has uh, really, really powerful benefits, um, you know, to the amygdala. So awesome, 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 awesome. Um, okay. And then the polyvagal nerve, which is also up in the brain, many, many things around around that. But that's again, that's that connection now to the gut and kind of those nerve fi- nerve fibers that go up and down to the gut. And we want to tone that polyvagal nerve. Um, some interesting things around here. This is where. Um, the re- the relationship stuff comes in. So we know that when we can have eye to eye, face to face conversations, and yeah. and this is what somatic experiencing does with people too. The therapist is there with you, and they can connect with you. Their vocal tone comes down, and we start to mirror that, and we resonate with that. Again, being with safe people, being in safe environments, that nurturing, I've got you, I see you, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've got your back, like I can love you even when you can't love yourself in this moment, that kind of thing, that tones the polyvagal nerve. Um, relationships impact our health. You know, I talk about this in the wellness wheel. Relationships is a spoke and absolutely impacts our immune system, you know, and our stress response. Um, so that's so strange to talk about a nerve and and um, a relationships toning a nerve. I know like, that's just so. It, does, it I believe it. It's just so, it's just so strange to think of it that way. Yeah. Well, and this is the the stuff of you know. It's not just like Holly was just saying. It's not that it's just trauma. It's also it's not you know my work. I've always been saying it's not just about eating right and exercise. Like there's yep. there's a study. Is it is it the Rosetta study? I hope I have that right, where 
um, is a group of community, a community and, and we look at different communities and tribes and societies around the world because, the, you know, there's lots of cultures where people drink, <laughs> they smoke, yeah. they don't necessarily eat well, they're not eating five servings of vegetables a day, but they don't have chronic disease and, and they right. live a long, thriving life. So, again, getting stuck in these absolutes, I'm gra- glad Holly brought that up, um, but the common denominators in those societies when we dig deeper are relationships. The community mm-hmm. bonds are incredibly strong. This, there's a spiritual connection and there's uh, leisure and play. So it's that downtime. It's kind of that fun. And those are those nourishing pieces that go beyond what we're eating, how we're exercising, you know, what happened emotionally yesterday. I think it's so funny. My mom came and saw me in Italy this summer and she thought like, I mean, the way that everyone drives and they don't buckle their kids in in strollers and they smoke every, you know, they smoke all the time. They drink coffee and a lot of sugar. And she thought for sure that they would have a much lower life expectancy in the, the United States. And she looked it up and they have like the, of, of Western worlds, they have the second, li- uh, second highest, um, life expectancy in the United States is 14. And it goes back to, sure, they might have some really unhealthy habits, but they also know how to know how to balance, right? Like work and life to, you know, probably um, more on the connected to each other, connected to each other. They stay with their, you know, like, it's just, it's a totally different culture. Um, And, and leisure is, is an important part of it. And so uh, anyway, I thought that was, and, and, relationships. I know when she said that, I, I was thinking, yeah, like in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> like well, in Rome. And I think, you know, I, I forgot to mention this, but it's um, necessary of the other part of all this research is that we all go through trauma. Um, but just because we experience trauma, it doesn't mean that we are traumatized. And that's mm-hmm. a really important thing to distinguish. And, and the, the factor in that then is what's our community? What's our, um, you know, the resiliency, like what, what's our techniques or how, have we had that mirrored to us? Like what are our sources that we can go to? And um, when people have that, they, they bounce. Like we are, we are a very resilient human species. So I, I don't yes. want this to sound like doom and gloom. Again, just because we have trauma does not mean the body is traumatized. Right. And also there's, there's, I I would, I would almost look at it like there's things that like, like a point system, right? Like, you know, we might have these, you know, marks against us, but also if we have all these other things, it balances it out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going for perfection. You know, no one, and I say this all the time, like I'm in the middle of this too. I don't sit here and talk about this because I've figured it all out and I'm a purist and I'm, I, Mm. I, I'm right there with, with everybody. Right. Right. (laughs) That's why we talk about it. (laughs) I mean, clearly we have it all figured out. (laughs) So I, um, were you, did you want to finish that point? Well, so a couple other things on the polyvagal nerve, there's many things, um, chanting, and I know that can be part of some yoga oh, practices. So glad you said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because when the tongue hits the, the roof of the mouth, the top of the mouth, that stimulates the pineal gland, the pituitary gland, the, yeah. mid, the midbrain. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's calming. Another big thing is, is journal writing. And um, we can really help all three parts of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, the logic versus the midbrain, the emotions versus the amygdala in that alarm, fight, flight, freeze response. And um, there's a technique that I really like. It's Susan Anderson, and her book is called Taming the Outer Child. Ooh, okay. And she teaches a, a, a journal dialogue process. And um, there's the three parts. She talks about the adult self, the inner child, and the outer child. 
So the adult self is the prefrontal cortex. That's the logic. That's the, you know, adult part of ourselves. The inner child is the emotions. What are we feeling? And that's what we're running from. We're distracting. We're trying to drink down, eat down, um, work away. And we lose so much sense of like, what do I feel right now? And then the outer child is the amygdala. And that's the part that it's the it's separating the behavior. So the amygdala is doing the behavior. So the amygdala is lashing out and eating the plate of brownies and drinking the bottle of wine. And mm-hmm. it's trying to help the midbrain. It's trying to help the emotions. But we need to tame that part of the brain. And um, using writing and in a, like a dialogue process of you literally write down adult and let the adult speak and let the inner child speak and the outer child. And you start to synchronize and these three parts of the brain. That. Because again, the, the midbrain and the amygdala do not respond to language. We're dealing with a, with a toddler kind of mindset. We can't rationalize. And so we always try to go in and say, well, rationally and logically, I, I should be this I way. Sh- right. Exactly. And, but we, that part of the brain responds emotionally and, and to, to sensation and to bot like yoga, to breath. And if people like to write, I have some clients that they just don't. But, but if people like using you know, journaling as a technique, Yep. That that dialogue technique can really, really help the brain. And then in her book, she has chapters on um, specific pieces like diets, people who struggle with their food, procrastination, uh, finances, awesome. debt. And so it's working with, she calls it the outer child, but it's the amygdala to calm that down so that we can you know, kind of get all three parts working together and, and live more of an effective life. And have you used, have you um, explored kundalini yoga at all? Yeah, I went through Kundalini teacher training. <laughs> okay, yeah, and I mean, this is for me. This is why it worked. Why I think it works so well, and why it's important, because it it does incorporate all these different things, right? It incorporates, I mean, maybe not the journal writing, but it incorporates the body movement. It incorporates like holding a position until you shake. It incorporates, you know, the sound and using the upper palate. And I'm just wondering what your thought. Like, has it? Have you? Do you use it in your work? Have you found it to be um, a practice that you incorporate in your work, or? I went through teacher training, um, I don't even remember how many years ago, 2008, maybe around there. Um, I don't, I don't use it as much. I do. And I understand all the the teaching and training and I'm very aware of it. Um, But just personally, kind of my practice right now is more of a vinyasa Mm -hmm. practice. But I learned so much, like you say, about the sound vibration, you know, the Mm -hmm. mantra, it all, it all plays in. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really, um, you know, interesting research or uh, research and resource for all yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah. That's what the cool thing is. Like, there's so many different there's things. So much it's out there. like it's like if you don't want to do, you know, journal writing, that's fine. But it's that's available. If you don't want to do Kundalini, like there's there's 15 other practices of yoga that are amazing. I mean, there's just so many tools. And what I love is that you've mentioned, you know, at least a dozen of them. Can you? I know we're, we're, this has gone on a little longer, but this has been so, so good. I would love it if you could tell us, if you could do two things, if you could tell us sort of what you see in people who are able to progress and recover, so to speak, um, what maybe some, some key differentiators between people who are able to thrive and sort of get work through some of this stuff and people who aren't. Um, and then sort of the, if someone's like, I don't even know where to start today, what can I do today to start feeling better? What are the three things that you would tell them to do, either resources or practices? Oh, those are interesting questions. So I'll start with the second one of, yeah. of what to start with today. It, 
it kind of depends, you know, so is somebody literally saying this is day one, like I'm going to stop drinking today, or are they a month into it or two years into it? So there, there's well, always... let's start with the day one people. Day one day, people. Yeah. Day one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to look at, at neurotransmitters and because um, GABA and serotonin are the two, those are the off switches. Um, and so, you know, we've been typically, you know, using alcohol to kind of invoke that off. Um, and serotonin, people tend to be a little more depressed where GABA is a little more anxious. So then put it, we're taking that out. So I, I, I try to like, what can we add in? We've, we're already yep. taking something big out. And psychologically, that's really hard when we have to stop something, deprive something. Yeah. So mm-hmm. looking at, you know, what can we add in? Going back to functional nutrition, um, you can never go wrong with whole foods. And when we look at like the nutrients that really support serotonin, that support GABA, that support dopamine, it's whole food. And so I would bring people back to the foundation and just, I'm, it's always remembering the basics and then picking one or two things. And the basics with nutrition is, first of all, just eat three times a day. <laughs> eat Mm -hmm. um, within 30 to 60 minutes of waking, eat kind of midday and then at the end of the day. And there's three big, you know, nutrients that the body needs. We need protein, we need carbohydrates, and we need fat. And just like some of these techniques we've been talking about, there's many, many options within those categories. People can choose animal protein. They can choose a vegetarian protein, you know, that whatever their preference is. But we need protein. And protein, when we talk about the neurotransmitters, the calming effect in the brain, the raw materials that make these neurotransmitters are the tyrosine, the glutamine, the, you know, all of these different pieces that we have to eat protein sources for that. You can also take like a branch chain amino acid. Um, and, and I work with people on, you know, what, what kind of works that way, but getting protein in, what your preference is, okay. what you like, getting in good, healthy fats, the omega-3 fats um, feed the brain. In the 50s, we gave kids teaspoons of cod liver oil. And, you know, it's kind of, everybody's like, yeah, yucky, it's safe. gross. Today, kids bounce off the walls with ADD. I'm not saying that's a direct correlation, but we need to consider it because the brain is 70% fat. The neurotransmitters need omega-3 fatty acids to form and, you know, keep producing. So some good fish oil, if people, you know, don't eat fish, um, or, you know, take the oil, you can do flax seeds, chia seeds, just some good healthy fats, coconut oil, avocado, uh, you know, just those good nutrients are 80% of it. And then right. carbohydrates, hopefully in the form, um, mostly vegetables, whether you're more of a vegetarian or an animal protein eater, it doesn't matter. 50% of what you eat, you know, at any sitting, hopefully is a lot of vegetables and then stay really, really hydrated. So I, you know, just start there and then depending where their level of anxiety or kind of what's going on, like what I mentioned earlier, maybe trying some passion flower or, you know, some herbs to help boost, boost some of those neurotransmitters. But I, 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 I go back to starting with the physical. Okay. No, that's great. Um, and I know I'm just thinking about all the women that, um, I, that I talk to that are like, I'm so anxious. I can't eat. Um, I'm so, you know, and how important it is to just get some of those things in your body and the, the anxiety, especially like the passion flower. And you mentioned, um, GABA and green tea. Yeah, it's, um, L-theanine. So it's an extract that's pulled out of green tea. You can find it in capsules and it has a very calming anti-anxiety effect. Um, and I just break the capsule open and put it right under my tongue for just direct delivery, you know, sublingually in under my tongue. Okay, cool. 
That's great. That's great, great, great. I'm sorry. I forgot the, the first part of your question. <laughs> oh, where to, uh, well, it was where to start and the, the three things. So the first thing you said was just basically do some, you know, possibly do a neurotransmitter test and work to repair it. And then you suggested whole foods, healthy fats, hydration, and possible supplementation. Um, and also eating at regular intervals and first time of the day. So that's where we can start. That's one of the things, which is like start to work on repairing the neurotransmitters. Where are the other two places that you would recommend people start? You know, and then I would say it's it, it's kind of up to the person of, you know, this toolbox. And Holly, you, you I know you've got a great blog post about, you know, your toolbox and, and different choices. And we've talked about some of them, with, whether it's the yoga, whether it's the um, breath and you know, aromatherapy, um, you know, going for a while. It doesn't matter, but pick one or two things and do them. And, you know, do them consistently, what's doable within your routine, your day. Because, again, we know that it affects your neuroplasticity and it rewires. But I I guess it's hard for me to kind of say everybody should do yoga or, you know, everybody. It's what sounds good to you, what resonates. And, um, you know, just... Would you say it's fair to say everybody should do something that moves their physical body? Yes, I think, yep. And that can be dancing. It can be a workout. I mean, anything, walking, Any, running, anything. Mm-hmm. skateboarding, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's my preferred thing. Yeah. Skateboarding. Um, going back to the food stuff, I think one of the points also that I want to point out is, is that, um, and, I, and I know you know this, is that when you said, you know, eating first thing in the morning and then eating in regular intervals throughout the day is not just about the brain chemicals. It's also about blood sugar balancing and, and alcohol is a huge regulator of blood sugar imbalances. And so I know that like, especially when you're talking about cravings and just like general well-being and, and dealing with anxiety, um, that eating regularly actually like the blood it's and stabilizing the blood sugar is, is also a significant part of, of what those things that you pointed out will also help. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, yeah. um, well, um, what, one other piece with um, blood sugar, because again, w- drinking you know, w- any kind of alcohol really screws up blood sugar levels. And then people tend to eat more sugar, or just eat crappy the next day. And so blood sugar is this mm-hmm. roller coaster. Um, and yeah. so that's why we want to you know, kind of eat regularly when, when we're really stopping the alcohol. Um, but from a sugar alcohol craving perspective, I do like L-glutamine. It's an amino acid, um, and it helps kind of that shut off that craving. If um, people find it's like, oh, I just I want wine or I want sugar, and it really helps the gut. So um, it'll help kind of build up the GABA, the serotonin. We have more serotonin receptors in our intestinal lining than in our brain. Mm-hmm. And there's a, yeah. people have irritable bowel; they can get constipated if their serotonin's low. So starting to really heal the gut, L-glutamine is a great place to start. The other place you can find L-glutamine is in uh, fermented vegetables like kimchi, oh. um, kombucha, apple cider vinegar. That, that's the fermented, like that good, healthy bacteria. And when we build up the gut, that builds up the gabbit, builds up the serotonin, and helps that um, kind of craving response and that blood sugar response. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay, so... Basically, working with a diet to balance blood sugar, gut health, neurotransmitters, um, and then creating a toolbox with healthy tools, um, and um, including something that moves the body physically. And what's the third thing? I'd love um, for you to say something about maybe trauma. Like, where where would people start with working with um, with the trauma aspect of it? Yeah, uh, somatic experiencing. And like when you said earlier, of you know, what do I see people who I don't know how you put it, um, people who are really kind of thriving and moving past this. Yeah. 
Right. It, it's that piece. And I see this with myself, you know, almost two years out, it's taken me to this point <laughs> to kind of get to that. Um, but sitting and being able to tolerate the sensation and the emotion. Yeah, um, sitting with discomfort. Mm-hmm. And it's easier said than done, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. so a somatic experiencing therapist is really skilled at helping with that. It's not as much about talking about the story, talking because we can talk for 20 years. That's your, still your brain, right? It's, it's still the brain. But what it is, is, you know, sitting and like I can feel the anxiety bubble up, like might start to, and here come the tears. And, um, you know, the therapist is like, okay, can you feel that? But what else at the same time can you also, like, can you feel your feet on the ground? Can you feel ground? Like, can you feel your breath? So being able to kind of titrate between the two of, yes, this emotion's coming up and it's really uncomfortable, but I can sit with it. And it it sounds, I I don't don't know if it kind of sounds trite, but but that's the crux of all of this. Like, that's why we're overworking. That's why we're overdrinking, overspending, because we don't want to just feel that feeling. And the feelings move within about 90 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> they really are waves or, you know, maybe five to 10 minutes. And, and we spend months and years running. And if we can that if, moment, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I'm, this is, I'm in the process of this, like, I'm not an expert at this, but for me of really trying to, the more I can just sit and be like, that really hurts. And that really, really, I feel really sad or the rage for me, it's the grief and the rage mm-hmm. and to just let myself feel it. That I think is the biggest, you know, it, it's not, a, it's not an expense. It doesn't have to be, you know, a big production or um, practice, but feeling the emotions. I think, I don't think that's trite at all. I think that's, <clears throat> that is. Well, it's every, it's it everything, right? It's being it's able everything. to it, like, to not escape, right? Being able to stay. Um, yeah. So this is, okay. So this is really great. Um I think like one thing that that also is important to understand is that it's a lot of stuff, but also if you just start like just starting anywhere on all this stuff, anywhere. it just builds on itself. So you start feeling better by with what you eat or you start feeling better because you start to create tools, but also you take those steps and it starts to kind of, uh, you know, unto itself create this this shift in 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 how you um and how you evolve. Um Yeah. What, no, know, that's true cuz it could easily be so overwhelming. It, <laughs> Because there is, there's so, I mean, it's like the work that we do is not just like not drinking. That's just part of it. Like the work is to truly like be able to be in your life and, and really to, mm-hmm. to not escape your life. And, to, and so it's, it's work that everybody needs to do. Like every single human needs to do this kind of work. And it's yeah. not just like a one and done. It's like building a life that is like, that allows you to actually, you know, show up for it and be comfortable in it and be comfortable and being uncomfortable and all sorts of stuff. So right, right. So yeah, look at it as a big experiment. You know, you're, it's, it's an experiment. Um, you know, it's not about perfection. Just one or two things that you like, that you look forward to, um, and that are also really helpful that you can be consistent with. Yeah, I love that. Yep, agree. Okay, this is so good. Do you? La- what, what, oh. I have. La- I have two questions left. Um. The, I want book recommendations, even though I've been gathering them as we've been going along. Um, and also, I'm really curious about cranial electro stimulation. I've read about it years ago. John Dupuis is a huge advocate of it. And the first time I read about it, I said, like, fuck that. That's weird. <laughs> I'm not going to get a device and electrocute myself. Um, t- can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you recommend them. Yeah. So um, it's the alpha stim or the cranial electro um, device. 
And I have one. I've had it for 10 years. I learned about it in a functional nutrition training. Um, I did a weekend neurotransmitter training. And um, it, where I learned about it was from a doctor here in Colorado who also has you know, a rehab center and, and does all of these techniques. And then we were able to, to get the device because we were at the conference. So I've used it off and on over the years for anxiety. The other piece that I did heavily for myself during those 30 days when I um, stopped drinking was I used the Alpha Stim twice a day. So it's just little ear clips that you put on your earlobes. Um, and it's just a little zing, kind of an electrical current. It's just a nine volt battery. And doesn't hurt, but you, you know, you can kind of feel the zing on your earlobe. And it's very relaxing. And it's it's the next thing, you know, that feeling of like when I first drink a glass of wine, like my it's just kind of that, oh, my body's relaxed. I get that same feeling from the alpha stem. Um, it's FDA approved for anxiety, depression, insomnia, and pain. They, it's been around for 30 years. They use it with uh, veterans, you know, coming back from war. Uh, they use it with ADD kids. Like they'll actually let them put it on in the classroom. And it's the alpha stem. So it brings you into an alpha state. It works on kind of the alpha theta waves in the brain. It synchronizes the brain and it boosts neurotransmitters just with that electrical current. And Holly, I know what you're saying. It's like, well, that's weird to... Uh, no, can, I'm like actually looking it up online uh, to see if I can buy one. Yeah. So I, you know, go to the website. I think it's like alpha and then like dash stem.com. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is. Unfortunately, you need a, uh, to work with a practitioner to, to get them. So a medical doctor, nutritionist, naturopath, that kind of thing. Um, okay. They're a little pricey, but I can tell you from personal experience and what I've learned just in my training, uh, it's, it's a pretty, you know, pretty amazing amazing device. There's a really good um, video if people go to the website, a, a news station in Pittsburgh. I, I don't remember what page it's on, but if you look through the website, they, they did like a little five minute um, kind of news clip. There, lots, there's been lots of news about it. Um, and they interview a woman who hasn't drank for 20 years, but still has depression and has used the alpha stim with great results. And there's a doctor on that news clip just talking about the anxiety, the depression and how helpful. Wow. It okay. That's awesome. awesome. Um, and then the last thing is what, like top five books that you would recommend or even top, like your, your, your three favorite your books. Yeah. Um, you know, Bessel Vanderkolk, The Body Keeps the Score is just amazing. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a lot, I think, kind of like this discussion, you know, if people want to hear more of that, if you're interested in it, it's his work is mind blowing. Um, the Edge Effect by Eric Braverman. He's, he's the neurotransmitter guy. He's a medical doctor in New York. He's the one that I've learned all about the neurotransmitter. He's the one that talks about the alpha stem where I first learned about it. So the edge effect is a good layman's book to have. Um, I really like taming the outer child if journaling speaks to you, but she also really explains just the brain in, in really easy, understandable, kind of a lot of what we've talked about, but just to continue reading about that. And the other thing, uh, her, the author's name is Susan Anderson, and her first book is called, let me think, From Abandonment to Healing, and she talks about the brain chemistry with relationships. Mm. So it's, it's the same thing. I mean, that, that loss, that abandonment with a romantic relationship, the death of a loved one, our brain, we, we have that same flood of chemicals and inflammatory response as, you know, as if we're drinking or smoking pot yeah. or something. So she, that, that's if relationships, like if people are obsessed with relationships or that compulsive, they're in kind of toxic relationships, I recommend her book. Great. You might know a couple of people like, who <laughs> might like that book. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. 
This has been so great. It's um yes. My brain it's so you I always know it's like a really good episode. My brain stops working. My brain has officially stopped working. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm going to do some yoga now. Actually, I'm going to go teach yoga. <laughs> nice. Um we can find you on your website. Um and where else can we find you? Uh, healthydiscoveries.com is where all my information is. My speaking workshop and coaching page is there. And then all the links to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, so going to healthydiscoveries.com is, is kind of my, my central spot. And your primary work is, is, is it one-on-one or is it, um, uh, wellness programs, group coaching? What is your primary, your core, your core thing? The core thing is the corporate, uh, the, you know, the on-site workshops. And then I do the coaching, coaching on the side and that's actually building. And I'm excited to, to continue to build that practice. Awesome. And your coaching is for helping people get sober or is it helping people, um, with health or like what, what's like your primary, um, client? Yes. Um, so it's overcoming the craving brain. So everything we've talked about, mm-hmm. my, my client base uh, primarily has been women, um, just high functioning. You know, the bottom hasn't fallen out, but um, very typically drinking a bottle of wine, you know, a night <laughs> or very frequently and just, you know, know there's more. Like they've kind of hit this thing where the kids have left for college. They, you know, don't feel really connected with their husbands. They lost a, you know, that thing and their alcohol increase, the the alcohol is really increased. And so how to, what are some of the resources, uh, you know, with the nutrition, the lifestyle techniques, and then I'm there, you've got me as the coach. Um, People usually email each day and kind of check in with the plan we've set up, holding them accountable, just really being the cheerleader. And we tweak as we go. Sometimes we'll try some things and maybe the writing didn't work. So then we'll try other things to help, help work, help the brain just get more balanced. That's wonderful. I love it. Well, it's, um, yeah, you're a wealth of of information. Um, This has been, it's been really great. Well, thank you. So you guys, like I said, I'm just <laughs> your biggest fangirl. I love the podcast and everything you guys write. And, and just, I, I'm on this with you about moving uh, out of the stigma That's and right. just changing that perception of what this is really about because people are, are hungry, you know, that they, they're wanting resources and wanting options. And so I'm passionate about offering what, you know, I wish this would have been kind of put together for me. Like yeah. when I stopped drinking, you guys mm-hmm. weren't doing your podcast. Yeah. And so it's, it's like putting together all the resources of different things work, but here's where the options are. Cause a lot of people don't even know what the options are. Well, it's crazy yeah. because we can say, you know, like casually, I need to lose five pounds or I need, you know, like we can talk about <laughs> like things casually, but we can't say like, yo, I'm kind of worried about alcohol. Like it's just not nope. something that we can say in public or really like, it's just, it isn't, it's not mainstream or to be private able, or, or in private, right? Yeah. So it is, and it's shifting. And that's like the best part of this is it's totally shifting. More and more women are talking about their struggles with it. Um, and, uh, and men and it's, yeah, it's, I, I'm excited. I think it's an exciting time. Well, and if I can give that back, it's just, it's so satisfying because I do have clients who say, you know, I'm really not ready to talk to my husband about this yet, but I kind of want to explore this with you for 30 days and just kind of, or, you know, I don't really want to say anything to my friend group. I'm just going to say I'm doing a fitness challenge and, you know, focusing. And and I understand that it's, it's very, you're raw in that time. And And so that's when people contact me and, you know, I'm in your corner. Um, it's completely private, you know, because people are always like from a corporate standpoint, HIPAA standards. 
records, all of that. I mean, yeah. there's nothing, nothing revealed. I'm your health advocate. Um, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor, but I've been there and, you know, understand a lot of the resources and research. And it's so satisfying to be able to give that back. Yeah, it is. It you is. understand a lot more than m- most uh, maybe all of the doctors I've talked to. I would about say this all specific thing. Yeah, <laughs> unless so. they're functional. Yeah, it's, don't discount that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jolene. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.